Hey folks, welcome to episode 163 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Scott Rowley. From rock bottom to the top of the world, Scott helps men by empowering them with the tools and resources needed to master their emotions, their minds, and create the life of their dreams. It was his trials and tribulations that called him to help other men find their way in life. He is an author, coach, and adventurer. In his past, he dealt with alcohol abuse and fixating on work to his detriment. When Scott was a kid, he was a scout, and he graduated the program as an Eagle Scout. He's lived a life filled with adventure, strife, and a deep love for introspection. Uh, you can find Scott's uh, life coaching and business coaching services uh, with the company that he co-founded at peakprosper.com. This episode, we talk about... Scott's experiences with his um, predicament, suffering, passion, adventures, and more. Without any further ado, here's Scott. I joined the Scouts when, gosh, we started in Cub Scouts. I think I was what, eight years old. It was back in Northeast Portland, where I was born and uh, just spend so much time learning about the outdoors and nature and how to respect the land and be of service to my community. And there's so many foundational elements to scouting that I still carry with me to this day as, as I've become a man. What's, what do they teach you in Boy Scouts? All kinds of things, man. Everything from like how to care for your community and be of service and be actively involved in community service projects that are really about giving back to humanity. I think so much of our livelihood is based on this idea of what can I get, but it's really he who gives first that gets the most in the future. I don't think that each day should be based on what we reap, but based on what we sow and sowing is, um, created really by being involved in our community. And I mean, you've created such an amazing community here with the becoming human podcast. It's your gift to the world. And the, the boy Scouts also taught me this foundational uh, aspect of being prepared, being prepared for anything and everything that life might bring. And they teach us about the 10 essentials. The 10 essentials are the, the core tools that you bring with you into the wilderness. Things like your knife and your compass and food and water and a map and extra clothes and just having a really clear plan for the day. See, the absence of the essentials as we go into different things in our lives really just sets us up for failure. And I think that another really important thing that the Boy Scouts taught me is about the hierarchy of uh, both uh, vertical and lateral leadership and how with the, the right leadership in a community, we have the ability to turn amazing things into a reality. Did you, did you have tangible experiences that you got to um, learn and internalize those principles in your youth? Oh man. Well, so when I was, um, Gosh, I think I was 12 years old. Yeah, I was 12 years old. And in the Boy Scouts, they have um, 
they have the standard monthly adventure outing. They take us backpacking and hiking and canoeing and whitewater rafting and snow, snow caving and all kinds of things. And, and you can be involved in all of those activities um, throughout your entire experience in the Boy Scouts. But when you, when you reach the age of 13, you then qualify for something called a high adventure and high adventure activities in the boy scouts at least in our troop are classified by things like a 50 mile backpacking trip so once a summer we go on a 50 mile one week backpacking trip um my my dad actually developed a whole mountaineering curriculum in our troop as well so uh the the guys that were involved in this got to climb mount st helens mount adams mount hood mount shasta uh, and mount rainier and when, when I was 13, no, when I was 12 years old, I just had this burning desire to become a part of the, like the big kids group. I wanted to go on one of these cool adventures and I got my parents to sign off with the upper scout masters that I was qualified to go on our 50 mile backpacking trip in the Olympic national forest, which is right next door to where you live. Yeah. And, uh, and we both know the Olympics qualify for, um, a rainforest, right? I mean, I think it rains over what a hundred inches a year there. Oh, probably yeah. even more. It's super wet and rugged. Yeah. And and I and I thought, well, this'll it'll be fine. Maybe it'll rain a day or two. I've I've been hiking in the rain, I've been backpacking in the rain, no big deal. <laughs> but our, our trip was um it was seven days. We did 50 miles point to point through the national park. Oh. And the forecast was for sun. It was supposed to be sunny, maybe a little bit of overcast on day. uh, I think it was day two and a half, maybe day three. It started misting, but in a mist in the, in the rainforest is more like a rain. (laughs) (laughs) And, and by that afternoon it was raining and raining in the rainforest is more like a torrential downpour. <laughs> oh, you're so soaked. <laughs> so so we're 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 soaked to the bone by the end of the third day. And it it continued to rain for the following two and a half days. And I mean it did not let up for two and a half days. And it rained a total of about 12 inches in those two and a half days, which meant that the the little creeks that were running through the rainforest turned into these gargantuous rivers. And and so where there, where, where you would otherwise be able to just kind of walk across the Creek, you had to wade across the Creek because it turned into this dangerous rushing river. And I learned so much about the importance of perseverance and a positive mindset and having a a team of people that, uh, that are really well-versed and well-trained in uh, all kinds of of survival skills. I mean, there was this, this guy, Kenny, he, uh, he went on to become a, a United States Marine, but that's a whole nother side story. He was able to start a fire on day two after it had soaked the whole rainforest. And I can't tell you how grateful our whole group was to have that fire that we could huddle around. Having, having backpacking, been backpacking over there in April, thinking that I can get away from the snow and go somewhere nice. Um, and realizing that how difficult it would be to start a fire and to have to like use stoves to heat ourselves up to like warm bottles of water to take respite from the, the cold. I feel you. That's a harsh environment. <laughs> 
Yeah, man. Boy, talk about respite from the cold. We went, uh, we went snow caving up on Mount hood one night. And if, for those listeners that don't know what snow caving is, it's essentially digging a hole into the snow to sleep in for the night. And when you dig these caves properly, your snow cave can be upwards of 40 degrees inside while it's negative 20 degrees outside. Um, but, but dug improperly. And if you don't have the right insulation from the snow underneath you, you're in for one frigid night. And, uh, again, back when I was 12 or 13, a fairly inexperienced scout, uh, I, I dug a snow cave with some of the younger scouts and, uh, had some improper insulation. The cave was poorly dug and I actually came to hypothermia Whoa. and, and there's three stages of hypothermia. There's like mild, moderate, and severe. In in mild hypothermia, you just kind of you start shivering a little bit. We've probably all experienced the shivers when it's cold outside. We go to the grocery store, we don't have enough clothes on, and we start shivering. And then there's um, uncontrollably shaking hypothermia where your teeth start chattering and your, your body's really shaking and you're really, really cold. And then there's severe hypothermia where you stop shaking and your body literally starts to shut down. It doesn't have the energy that's necessary to try to shake itself back to warmth. And that was the condition that I'd gotten into. My body just stopped shaking and I was kind of just cold sitting there and my face started to look ghost-like. Now, gratefully and thankfully, I was only about half a mile or a mile away from Timberline Lodge. So getting back to some warm respite wasn't a huge, um, huge adventure. Um, but needless to say, it gave me some real clarity into what can happen quickly when you're uh, when you're exposed to really harsh environments for really not even that long of a period of time. Would it be fair to say that? What you experienced on your um, your Olympic National Park trip and uh, your snow caving trip was adversity or s- suffering in some way. Sure. And yeah. is it it's really unique in these experiences that you get to experience such a high degree of peril, suffering and adversity, um, because if you were to, like, try to simulate and put someone through this. And, and like deal this to someone so they can have these, you know, experiences that'd be pretty torturous in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. But in, in these, in these kinds of places, it's like the, the epitome of adventure. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. And you know, he, one of my, yeah, I was gonna, I was going to say one of my, uh, I don't remember which one of my mentors, probably a fictitious mentor that I met in a book or something said, um, the adventure begins when something goes awry, meaning that when, when something doesn't go as planned, that's when the real adventure begins. (laughs) (laughs) And um, did you like, like, did you dream or were you passionate about being in those kinds of landscapes? Did some part of you really love it? Well, I love it. And my, uh, even before the, before the boy Scouts, before the Cub Scouts, my, my parents introduced us to the the outdoors and the wilderness at a very young age. I mean, I was probably in a, I don't know what you call it, but a child backpack hiking up Mount Adams through the wildflowers and experiencing paradise park at Mount Rainier, uh, before I could even speak. So, uh, one could say that the, the outdoors and, and, 
all its beauty and inspiration that is out there was planted within my mind at a very, very young age. Do you think any of that was in, was intentionally sown? Probably uh, uh, both intentionally and uh, unintentionally. You know, my, my parents, sh- gratefully, they shared the, the, a passion for the outdoors and skiing and hiking and just spending quality time in nature. And I think as a result of their passion, they just naturally brought us into that environment so that they could share, share it with us. And um, I, I think that secretly they were hoping that, that all three of their children fell in love with the outdoors like they did. And, and we certainly have. So do you, do you think there's something inherently um, or personally gratifying about these experiences? Hmm. Personally gratifying about the outdoors. So, you know, I will, I, I pull so much of my personal inspiration and my personal story from my experiences in the outdoors. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time indoors with my profession nowadays, but whenever my soul feels like it, the soul battery is getting a little bit low. Um, I know that that's just because I haven't uh, invested my time and my energy into the experiences that really enliven my spirit. And that's hike, that's hiking amazing peaks. That's mountaineering and ski mountaineering and going rock climbing and um, just really experiencing the energy that we get to experience by simply being in the outdoors. I um, I've, I've come to believe at least for me that God stands for great outdoors. And I feel the, the power of God so powerfully when I'm out, even just walking in my backyard here where the trees are so abundant or when I'm climbing a a route on the rocks or um, looking into a crevasse, that's just, I mean, death defying and awe inspiring. So, um, Yes. I, I mean, like I'd said, when my soul battery is low, I know that I need some outdoor gratification. Did you ever um, have any challenges like being stable when you were, when you were a child or, um, or functioning, you know, within your, like your, within your peer group or like in school or anything like that. And how do you reconcile with that if you did? Mm. That's an amazing question, Will. And I, I'm sure that there's experiences that date much further back than sixth or seventh grade. But I think that something biologically happens when we're in sixth grade, seventh grade. I mean, as boys, we hit puberty and all of a sudden our biological sex instinct is activated. And for me, I'm just correlating that time in my life to when my concentration, um, my demeanor, my personality um, went completely amok, meaning that I started to experience extreme symptoms of, I guess you could call it ADD or ADHD, extreme hyperactive disorder. I never actually got diagnosed with that. But if we look symptomatically about what was going on in my brain and how I was reacting to situations in school, everything was right there. The whole story was. And 
I think that it was really driven from multiple factors. I mean, this this natural biological change in my body that was driving uh, an inspiration to attract women into my life or girls, I guess it, they would be at that time. Um, and then just this this desire that I believe we all have to to fit in. And I don't know why, but I always felt like I was an outcast, like I was a weird one. Like I was the boy scout, the cub scout that got made fun of for the the silly uniform that he wore. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was the kid that got made fun of because I only had four or five uh, outfits that I wore every single week to school. Now they were really nice. It was really nice clothing that I had, but I wasn't the kid that had like a wardrobe of 20 different outfits that I could wear and six pairs of shoes. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that what resulted from that was this uh, this natural need to be the humorous one, the funny guy, uh, so that other people would like me. As a result of this, well, my my concentration went to zero because I was trying to be everywhere at one time. My grades suffered extremely. I think I got like a, a 2.0, maybe even worse than that one term. Um, I couldn't read. I literally could not read. If you gave me a book in seventh grade, and, and um, I mean, let's just say To Kill a Mockingbird was one of the books that we were subscribed to read. You probably read it as well at some point. Um, I, I might read 20 pages. And you might ask me, what, well, what did you just read for the last two hours? Because it would take me two hours to read 20 pages. Mm-hmm. And I would have no idea. I could not tell you a lick of what I just read. And that that's because while my eyes and maybe my subconscious was reading, I consciously was somewhere else daydreaming. I was not reading. And uh, I don't I don't know the uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, malady or a defect one who can't read but uh that's basically what i was struggling with dyslexia i think it is and um that's you felt like an outcast in, in in school absolutely and it was just a it was just a feeling inside. It was almost an internal created story. It wasn't necessarily true. I mean, I, I had friends. I had a family that loved me. Um, I, I remember there's this this guy. Uh, his name was Alex. And him and I would I mean, we were like the class clowns. We were the funny guys and we were really good buddies in middle school. I think because it, to some degree, we both felt that internal feeling that we were outcast, that we didn't really fit in with a specific tribe or a specific group of people. And I, I think that that really started to evolve for me in uh, eighth grade when I got really invested in skiing. And I mean, that became quite literally an obsessive part of my life for the next, I mean, even to this day. So we could say for the next 20 years. So has that, has that narrative helped you somewhere along the line? You mean the the narrative of being an outcast and not fitting in? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I think that it's both helped me and hindered me, Uh, meaning that I, 
I feel it less so now than ever before. I have my tribe here in Whitefish, Montana. I've built this amazing tribe of men at Peak Prosper. Um, but when I look back, even four years, five years ago, when I finally left the corporate world, and we'll talk about that later, um, that feeling of not fitting in, of not really having a solid friend group, of not feeling connected to my community, it still existed. And if, if, if any of our listeners here are feeling depressed or disconnected or anxious, one of the, uh, one of the fastest, easiest places to begin looking is our community. And if we're feeling connected to our community, our tribe, our group of friends. So to, to answer your question, it's given me great insight into my personal experience and helped me help other people build the community that lifts them up to heights beyond their current realm of possibility. And do you, when you're, when you're helping people, um, are you helping with the intent to create a future for them or help them find a future where, um, where suffering and discomfort, um, and like maybe these negative thoughts that we can have about ourselves are non-existent or is there an alternative reality to that? Hmm. Great question. I, uh, I don't think that we experience life without suffering. I mean, that, that is like the ultimate aim of Buddhism uh, to, to create a life free from suffering. And the reality is that only exists if we can create a life that is truly lived from the present from now See, I, I do not believe that suffering exists in the present. Suffering exists in the past and the future, but it does not exist in the present unless we are so fixated on something that we did in the past and where we wish to be in the future, creating present time suffering. For example, if we think back to this conversation we had earlier today, the experience of backpacking through the Olympic National Forest could be viewed as this extreme form of suffering. Uh, suffer fest, for example. The, the experience of suffering could only happen on that backpacking trip if we were, as a group, so fixated on how beautiful it was the prior day and how horrendous it was today and how terrible this night was going to become in the present moment. But as we were backpacking down the trail, laughing and hooting and hollering and keeping everybody's spirits high, really enjoying each footstep in the present, there was no suffering. There was this sense of real inner peace and stillness. But there was also at the same time suffering because of the mind's tendency to wander to the past and how cozy my couch was the week prior back in Portland and how I just wanted to put a nice dry fleece coat on and cover myself in a blanket and how horrendous tomorrow is going to be. So 
your your question, what is the intent of my inner desire, my inner drive to help other people? And it's not necessarily the elimination of suffering, but the empowerment of tools and the ability to tap into those tools to create a life that is more one that's lived in a state of peace and presence. And when those moments of suffering do arise, that they're empowered with the ability to wake up to their present time experience and fully experience it for what it is right now. My uh, I was hiking in the Alpine with my son and my girlfriend, and we were sitting on next to like one of the glacial tarns and there were dragonflies surprisingly (laughs) and the dragonflies are are really beautiful because you can hear them they're loud their wings click and they have um, very beautiful patterns on them and they're all very distinct patterns too um and you notice when you look at dragonflies, if you glance at them or if you, you know, gaze them from, from, from a far distance, like even like 10, 15 feet or so, that you just notice their color. And if you notice that they have, you can notice they have two colors or three colors on them, but you don't really see patterns very much. You don't see the ways that their eyes are shaped or their wings are shaped or the different, you know, shapes of their bodies. Um, and Dragonflies can bite people, but they don't bite people from my experience or what I've heard, unless you, you literally are trying to grab them or attack them. Um, the dragonflies were really curious. So they'd come up to my son and I, and my son would panic and freak out and he'd go, ah, and (laughs) they'd run away. And then they'd come back and he's, ah, but all in all, the dragonfly never actually did anything but it came, came towards him and my son would perceive it as a threat, but his, he was so caught up in, in his suffering and of expectation that this was going to harm him and the harm was going to be really bad that he never actually saw the dragonfly for what it was. And I was noticing as he was distraught as the dragonfly would come in, that the dragonfly had beautiful patterns on its back, almost like a butterfly. And that some of them were, some dragonflies had circle polka dots on its back. And then other ones, they had these little square shapes on them. And the patterns were super distinct. And I found dragonflies to be really beautiful. A dragonfly would come over to me as it would go and explore my son and run away and then come back and it would um, come in between my legs. And I noticed if I were really, really calm, the dragonfly's wings would almost graze between my legs because it could just barely fit. And then it would just come back out from my legs and it never hurt me at all. And for the first time in my life, I got to actually see how a dragonfly behaved around people because I used to be a lot like my son. I was terrified because I thought so many things would hurt me. And and I think about that a lot, that I was having an experience, but I was suffering because I wasn't present. And in the moment, I was so caught up in thinking about the future, about what could happen so much that I couldn't actually see what was happening. Mm-hmm. That uh, that story, it uh, it brings me back to a hike that my wife and I went on here in uh in glacier national park up Av- avalanche we went up to avalanche lake well we didn't quite make it to the lake it's only about two miles and 
Montana is known for bears in abundance, uh, so much so that uh, anyone in their right mind does not go on a hike without bear spray. And grizzly bears, too, right? Yes, yeah, grizzly bears. Big. Yeah, there's uh, there's more grizzly bears concentrated here in the Flathead Valley than I believe anywhere else in the world. Whoa, that's spooky. Yeah. Um, so we went on this hike up Avalanche Creek to Avalanche Lake, an absolutely beautiful hike. If anyone comes here to visit Glacier National Park, definitely go to Avalanche Lake. But at any rate, about a mile into the hike, I look up the trail and I see this black blob and I go, no way. There's a there's a bear walking down the trail. And I go, honey, we got it. We got to go now. We got to move. We got to move. We got to go hide behind this rock right now. So this bear doesn't see us. I mean, I mean terrified, right? Terrified. We go hide behind this rock so the bear doesn't see us because the bear is coming right down the path that we're walking on. And I can hear it. it's going. <laughs> just walking down the trail about 20 feet away from us. And I mean, I'm practically shaking, uh, literally shaking. My heart is pounding. My body is just pumping with adrenaline and we're hiding behind this rock and the bear walks right past us about 10 feet, 10 feet away from us on the other side of this big boulder. It doesn't see us or smell us or anything. And it was a little black bear cub. Um, probably 150 or 200 pounds. And my wife and I, we recollected ourselves, kind of brushed ourselves off. It was just a black bear, black bear. Black bears are relatively harmless. <laughs> and we decided we will continue hiking. So we continue hiking. And I, I tell you, we probably didn't hike, but another half a mile or a mile. And the trail starts to get a little bit steeper. And I, look up the trail, maybe 100 or 200 yards. And I see this ginormous black blob and I go, shit, no way. Another fucking bear. I mean, scared out of my misery, scared out of my gizzard. And I go, honey, honey, there's another bear coming, like a big bear. And so we uh, we scampered off the trail, maybe, I don't know, 20 yards or 50, 50 feet or so off the trail. And there's no rocks or anything to hide behind. But there's these fairly large trees we can hide behind. I get my bear spray out. I have my bear spray in one hand and my camera in the other hand. By God, I'm going to document my death. <laughs> At least the family will be able to see it. <laughs> and we're 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 standing there in silence, as quiet as we can. I mean, you can you can hear a mosquito. We're so quiet. This bear again comes walking down the trail. You can hear it breathing. <sighs> I mean, they look like a beast. This is a fully grown black bear. It probably weighs 500 pounds. And if it was to stand up, it was six or seven feet tall. And it's walking down the trail and it stops parallel to us uh, about 50 feet off the trail. And I go, God, just keep walking, bear. Keep walking, bear. Keep. It's like I was trying to telepathically tell the bear to keep walking down the trail and go on with its day. 
<laughs> you didn't get that badge yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, there was this big, uh, this big down log that uh, separated us from the trail. And I, it was probably 15 feet off the trail and the bear walked up to that log. Ooh. And, and I go, no, the bear's coming right to us. It's probably 35 feet away from us at this point. Again, I got my bear spray in one hand, my phone in one hand. And the bear pops its head up over this down tree. So I can see half of its body is three or four feet of this bear sticking up over this stump, looking right at me. I mean, eye contact with me. Well, oh my, that'd be so menacing. And, and I, and I, I go bear. If you come over this log, you're in for one hellacious bear spray time. Well, he scampered off down the trail. Thank God. Ooh. That was the end of our hike for the day. But uh, your story about the dragonfly and the, the fear that your son was experiencing. Mm-hmm. I can relate to that. I'm, I'm not immune to that just because I'm 33 years old now. Yeah. Um, I was terrified of that bear and truth be told, I don't think that bear cared about me at all. (laughs) Especially like when, how was looking into the eyes of the bear? (laughs) Terrifying. That's what one, especially with bears, that's been my experience. It's just, just doesn't, does not care. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's the most terrifying experience to look a bear in the eyes. Yeah. (laughs) and i i think what you were talking about about the feeling of being an outcast and like the feeling of of potentially like fearing for your life and being prey right i i I think that you know you can be present and learn to cope with that right because you could have also died you know and if you died like what could you have done if you could protect yourself but like as you're dying what can you do other than die and 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 what what opportunity do you have when you're dying? And I would think that an opportunity that you do have is to be as present as you can as you're dying. Which I, I think that would be because, I mean, you, you know, what? I, like at the end of the day in this life, like all we have is our attention. And our ability to be present. And um, and all of us will reconcile with that, you know, not necessarily that we're going to be harmed by an animal, but even on your deathbed, the last moments of your life, like you can spend it toiling over who's going to do something with your property or, you know, what have you gone through through your, your regrets through your life, or you can feel the last moments slipping away. And I think about this because I felt like an outcast and I felt really insecure like yourself. And I thought there was going to be like cures that were going to fix me of my ailments and rid me of them forever so that I never had to deal with my anxious self or, um, and in my uncertain self. And I realized that there was hope because the more that I would do have experiences where I get to practice um, being confident and I get to um, practice like now, 
you know, being comfortable around other people and opening myself up to this experience. Um, it becomes easier to have the experience and I can find more joy and less fear. Um, but there's always the intensity available to have like an out of my mind experience. You know, and I think about that, like that's manifested in, and embodied in the physical world, because even if you could deadlift something and you started off deadlifting, never having to, to lift weights in your whole life, the, <clears throat> an easy deadlift, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like a hundred pounds plus the bar, um, would be really hard for you. And it would be really hard for you to have an easy experience deadlifting. It would be a high intensity almost with anything but just lifting the bar but as you become really practiced your tolerance for deadlifting widens and then it takes a lot of weight to recreate that intensity that was always there when you first started you know and that's what i think about you and your tribe like you identify oh whoa like this is something that I, that means a lot to me, something that I have to work on. And then as you work on it, it may not ever go away, but your tolerance and your, your stability has widened. So sometimes you might feel, you know, like an outcast, but most of the time through your life, you've built this stability and you've practiced this sense of belonging through creating your own community. I, th I think that, um, uh... It was Steve Jobs. He said um, the greatest fear that most humans have is the fear that they have something to lose. Mm. And when we wake up to this conscious acceptance of our own mortality, I, I believe that we have the ability to tap into a higher consciousness where we experience that peace and connection and presence. And one of my, my mentors, he says, Scott, uh, life is just as natural as death, mm -hmm. but people don't want to accept that there will come a time when physically they no longer will be. And when we remind ourselves that every day and every moment could be our last, I mean, this might be my last breath right now. I hope it isn't. The fact that I'm still talking is representation that that past breath was not my last. But when we realize that, when we really internalize that this could be your last moment and we detach from the material, your climbing shoes and your backpack and your skateboard and these things that you're attached to from an identity level, we're free. And this attachment to community and other people and things in my house and my computer and my brand and all these things can in and of itself create so much suffering because that opens the possibility of loss. I asked one of my clients who's now my business partner. I said, Mike, 
why, why did you decide to work with me? I mean, really, why did you decide to work with me? And he said, Scott, because someday I will die. Because someday I will die. And I don't want to spend my life in fear. Afraid of creating everything that we've talked about creating in the months to come. And I can't create it by myself. And this sense of isolation and I have to do it myself and I have to go it my way. And that is a painful way to try to force our ways through life. Some powerful stuff there, Will. And, and that, even what you said in the end, like, you know, that you have to do it your way. And I, I identify with that in being someone who once felt like an outcast and would surprise himself to find that I would seek that identity as well. <laughs> and I would <laughs> retreat to that and I would rally against that furiously because I would distinctly remember periods of time in my life where I felt so alone and so by myself and without a community. And then to see myself looking at this opportunity to be a part of a community (laughs) and deciding that it'd be way better off to do this on my own because I could do it on my own terms. And then it shattered. And I was like, how responsible am I for, for living this way and for having this narrative and contributing to being stuck? And, and that was perhaps one of the most gratifying moments of my life because I found a way to take responsibility for something that I didn't know how to. You just said uh, two very powerful words that have the ability to transform somebody's life. And those two words were stuck and responsibility is actually three words though, because Most people think responsibility is to point blame or take blame or take accountability for something that's happened to responsibility. It's their responsibility to do the dishes. It's their responsibility uh, to fix the car that got crashed. They should take responsibility for running the stop sign and T-boning the car. But really, if we look at it from a different perspective, responsibility is my ability to respond to something. Something happening outside of me. I have the ability to respond to something. I have the ability to take ownership over my life and respond to what conditions I've created that maybe are making me feel stuck. And we work with a lot of guys that feel just stuck in the mud of life, pedaling on a hamster wheel and going nowhere. And As soon as they wake up to the fact that they have the ability to respond to their current conditions differently than they have been for the last week or month or year or years, then transformation happens. The butterfly does not become a butterfly based thing stuck in the cocoon, right? I mean, it, 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 it changes its response 
to its current experience of being stuck in the cocoon so that it can break free and flutter away. Do you, what helps people um, reassess their perspective and find an alternative approach? What has been the most helpful thing in your experience? Sadly, pain is the first word that comes to mind. Uh, when, when humans are comfortable, at least most right-minded humans, I'm not talking about the kinds of guys that go backpacking through the Olympic national park for seven days in the rain for fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but maybe I am at the same time when, when we are comfortable, very little change happens, but pain will teach us everything. It's the human notion, the desire to avoid pain, though, that prevents us from actually having the opportunity to change, transform, and evolve. The caterpillar goes through a very painful transmutation when it becomes a butterfly. I can't imagine that that experience is comfortable, much like a newborn baby coming out of a mother's womb. I can't imagine that as a comfortable experience. It is incredibly painful for both the mother and the child. But that pain completely transforms a life. And our ability to listen to what pain is trying to teach us on both an emotional and a physical level empowers us with the ability to change our responses to what created that pain in the past. Pain will teach us everything. Pain people oftentimes perceive pain as a sensation that is an undesirable, that's undesirable. Um, And I see that as um, our, our experience of pain, but like I had a friend that I worked with and he had some severe lower back pain and the way that they were able to alleviate some kind of chronic pain was they could cut the nerves. (laughs) Um, uh, And you don't have any like feeling sensation there, but you can still use that area of your body. The problem being is that if they were to do that for his lower back, if he were to get cut, he would never know and he can bleed out and die. And there's a thing that like pain is, is an interesting form of communication. And I think about that with your body. Like when things are really painful Um, it's my body's most effective way to communicate that something is wrong. And I don't have to be persuaded that something's wrong because pain as it is experienced is undesirable. It's like the number one universally undesirable sensation that I have. Um, That's my son would, would come and talk to me about that a lot that he would like fall. And he's like, I want you to remove my pain. Do you have something that you can give me to take my pain away? And oftentimes I would comfort him with love and remind him that pain is an experience. It's part of your body. And there's a reason why you feel this pain. You know, he's, for example, he fell when he was skateboarding. And I think about this, if I were able to take away all of his pain, 
what incentive would he have for making sure that he improved his falling mechanics so that he did not put his body at such dire consequence? Because if there weren't pain and he were to fall in that same way, he would still erase some of his skin and start bleeding. And if he were to continue to fall in that manner, it'd be likely that his skin would only become worse and it would become less healthy and less protected. But you find that in falling from skateboarding, you can fall like someone does in parkour and you can roll through and you can relax. You can learn different techniques and practices. If you did not experience, even if you experience pain, most people don't go through the steps to learn how to fall and how to increase their ability for falling. So they reduce the consequence of falling or the risk rather. But if there weren't any pain, how would you ever have any incentive to take care of your body? (laughs) And you see a lot of people now where there's incentive to take care of your body because it's a nice thing to do because you have access to a greater range of pleasure, but that's not incentive for most people or most living things, you know, but pain is, is an incentive in some fashion. And it's not that it would be terrible as a conscious living being to inflict pain on somebody. I would never do that. It's unethical and moral. Right. But there is something to be learned of pain. And so when I go backpacking, right, it's a way to introduce an experience of pain without inflicting pain because it'd be a terrible thing to do, but there's still something to be learned from experiencing it. And if it were my goal to alleviate my son of pain, I would make sure that he could never do anything that can give him pain, even if it were an enjoyable experience, but there's something lost when you take away all experiences of pain. And if you were to look at kindness as to ensure that someone not really compassion, but kindness, ensure that someone has the easiest and most comfortable experience. Do you actually ensure that they have a quality of life? Are you ensuring that they are able to have a, that they're taken care of? Uh, And I think that was an interesting conundrum for me to face as an, as a parent. Uh, And then it's really spoke to me as a person. And yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm reminded of something that Denzel Washington said in one of his speeches. And he said that so many people have a dream, whatever it might be. Maybe it's to go travel to another country or, to start a business or to change careers or to enter a new relationship. But they also have uh, the voice of fear running in their mind and people have a tendency to create fallback plans. If something doesn't go as they intended or desired and Denzel says, I don't want you to stay focused on your fallback plan. Fail forward. And I think that what so many people get wrapped up in 
when things don't go as they had planned or intended or desired is that they fail backward instead of failing forward and learning what there is to learn from that experience so that they can move forward with a stronger mindset or maybe the business didn't go as as they had wanted it to so they can stop doing what didn't work and focus on what does work or maybe the relationship left them brokenhearted and they get stuck in heartbreak and all of the symptoms that cycle through in that experience never wanting to be in a relationship again rather than learning from the beauty that was created in that relationship and letting go of the pain so that they can become open and more resilient to human relationship in the future. Mm-hmm. Fail forward. That um, I find that that fear that we have uh, in Mike's in my experience on with with psychedelics uh a lot of it has it feels like i reconcile with a lot of my choices and decision making comes from the fear of death Mm. And, and i often forget that and it doesn't necessarily take psychedelics it could have a conversation like this um it can have me circle back and remind me to the and ground me to my values and I'm reminded of how much fear fear that I have it's almost like um, wrapping me like a cocoon that you have to unravel to be able to see through to realize that the thing that you were so afraid of is probably not as threatening as the fear itself I um, (laughs) I started I started to lose my hair when I was 21 years old and I was so afraid of uh, uh, the judgments and getting made fun of and being a, a bald guy and with each passing day as the fear continued to mount my confidence continued to uh, fall out of my mind as with each follicle of hair And my attachment to that identity of Scott with a mop head, hippie hair. And the battle between losing that identity and accepting it created a lot of depression, actually. And anxiety and discomfort in my own skin. And I... I I still remember all of the madness I went through. I I did, I tried Rogaine. I tried natural hair growth remedies. I started getting obsessed with how much it would cost to do laser hair plants and all of this crazy shit just to keep my hair on my head. The attachment to my physical identity was creating emotional suffering. One day I finally just said, fuck it. This is, absolute madness. I mean, if you look at Rogaine, for example, uh, I think it's like 90% butane, which is a flammable chemical substance. I mean, I'm putting this shit on my head just to grow hair. And 
And, and, and one the day that I finally just said this enough is enough. This is madness. And I shaved my head and I really embraced the, uh, the bald identity and made a internal decision to just become a confident bald man. I experienced so much liberation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's almost silly to talk about it now, but the reality is that is an experience that many men go through and even, even women. I mean, there's women that lose their hair. And the the self-confidence that goes with that loss is of much greater value loss from a human experience perspective than the hair itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to use the bathroom. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> I have to pee. So uh, I'll be right back. We'll jump right back in, man. Sounds good. <laughs> Do you, do you have any exercises or any kinds of like activities that people could, could do or, or try that help for like testing your clinging to your identity or testing to like your aversion to your, your, your aversion to like fear, your attachment to fear? Hmm. I think there's, there's two questions there, right? I mean, is is there, is there a practice? Is there an exercise to um, let go or transform into the identity of the version of myself that I really want to be not necessarily become, but be, we can talk about being and becoming later maybe. And then the other question, is there an exercise to let go of fear and lean into faith? And for the the former question how do i how do i transform into the the person that i really want to be how do i transform into the person that i want to be aligning my being with the the principles the values the standards the dreams the goals and all of the the energy that surrounds that identity and that state of being and what comes to mind for me, Will, is, is an exercise. A, it's, a, it's a meditation called PURE, a PURE meditation. And PURE stands for Parallel Universe Reality Emulation, which essentially means that right now in this moment, there's a parallel reality that's running. And that parallel reality represents my highest state of being that I could possibly imagine. And the exercise, the pure meditation is investing time, investing 15 to 20 minutes, letting go of emotions or beliefs or identities or my attachment to my hair that's falling out of my head, just letting go of everything that I'm holding on to at an emotional and a material level and entering what I call a zero state where you feel like you're almost floating on your chair, your mind is of, but emptiness. And only from this zero state, can you really begin to visualize and fully experience your parallel reality? 
the parallel reality again is that highest vision that you have for yourself, your highest standards, your greatest, grandest dreams, the energy that you feel flowing through you when you're in that highest state of being and being that person that you truly desire to be free from the attachments to things like my hair and really leaning into and fully experiencing and embodying that, that new, almost more powerful, more free identity in this state of pure meditation and just sitting with it and being with it and becoming really intimate with that person, that version of yourself until you really feel like you are in a state of being that person. And then the third element to this meditation is just waking up into that new reality, waking up into that parallel universe reality that has been running this entire time and waking up into that state of being. So that's one exercise that people could practice. And it's very powerful when done properly. And I would get into the rhythm of doing this at least once a week. And if you already have a meditation practice, this is perhaps one that you do once a week. So it's, um, I think everyone, this might be a fair, a correlation, but, or, um, or metaphor for that meditation, um, and even visualization in general and creating like, and associating yourself with like your, your vision of who you want to be. Because I find that very interesting um, in that it seems when you, when, you, when you start investing into thinking on who you want to be and, and, and what your values are and putting actual thought into that, it seems that you're able to see the potential for that in your reality, even if that potential is always there. Um, one thing that it reminds me of is when you look up at the sky and people always talk about, I see a bunny in the clouds. I see a circle. I see a square. And the thing that I would wonder is, is if you were to like, this isn't like Plato's allegory of the cave, but, um, but if you were to grow up into a completely like sanitized environment where there were no, um, where there were no rabbits, right. There were no traditional drawn shapes. There was just like a natural shape of, I guess, yeah, a cave. Um, and, and then if you were to get brought out and shown the clouds and there were the shapes that we think we see, cause we just recognize patterns in the clouds. Right. Um, would you, would you see those things or would they just look like amorphous blobs or would they find some way to overlay some kind of patterns that they might've been able to see within the cave, you know, um, onto the clouds. Cause I think that our ability to see shapes in the clouds is perhaps the same thing when we create a vision or we set our aim and it's able to fundamentally change our life because we're only able to see these things in the clouds because we already have labels and associations with them. Since we have these, um, these ideas in our head and we've internalized them so that we know them by heart. Like, you know, and someone who's looking at the clouds knows what a bunny looks like to them. They know what a circle looks like to them. They don't have to like check, check a book to make sure that they got it right. Right. It's knowledge. And with that knowledge, they're then able to see something that could not be seen before. So 
wouldn't that be the same principle if you were if you were spending time visualizing and thinking about this life that you wanted to live in these principles and stuff you would eventually internalize and know that so clearly what that looks like that you were able to see patterns that would bring you closer and closer to that in your everyday life yes and one of the therein lies one of the biggest problems though mm-hmm. And the, the biggest problem that so much of humanity has is they're living a life based on beliefs, perceptions, ideas, mm-hmm. philosophies, theories that have been fed to them for ages. Never actually taking the time to stop all of that and ask themselves, who am I? And what do I really want and what, what do I really believe in free from all of the maddening conversations on social media and theoretical ideas in books, even if they're science backed books, who am I and, and what do I want? And those questions while so simple are profound and powerful. And most people, if they sit with those two questions for 10 minutes, they will have one of two responses. They will have the response based on all of their past beliefs and thoughts and experiences that you were alluding to. The clouds are, but nothing without somebody teaching us what the clouds are so that we can have that perception. Or they will say, I don't know. And most of us don't know. Most of us don't know, or we do know, and we are that collection of beliefs and experiences and thoughts of the past. And we don't like what we do know. And we're stuck in that version of ourselves, lacking the clarity and the ability to redefine who we could be, who we actually might, um, be meant to be in that parallel universe reality where our highest self is quite literally living life. And do you, do you find that that pain, that pain is a, um, can be an introduction to that, whether it's emotional, emotional or physical pain. Pain is a catalyst for change, right? I mean, when you look back on your life or I look back on my life, it's been some of the most painful experiences, either physically or emotionally, that have inspired massive transformation in my life. Pain is often the beginning of a new chapter, just like the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. The pain that they go through while coming out of the cocoon is the beginning of an entirely new life, one that they can fly in. Mm-hmm. one full of beauty and colors and abundance and freedom to go where they want and be what they want and do what they want, see what they want. It's the resistance to that pain or the avoidance to the pain or the numbing of the pain that actually keeps us stuck in a pain cycle, unable to actually change and transform and create the life that so many of us daydream about on a daily basis. Oh, uh, that's like, 
ow, I'm experiencing a pain on my foot. And you could do two things. You could look, what is the source of the pain? Or the other one, you could run away and scream. Mm, exactly. It's interesting. But oftentimes, and that's sometimes we people use the words reacting and acting. And even deeper than just asking what is the source of the pain, because oftentimes it's really hard to get to the source. What is what is the branch of this pain? And where does that branch go to? And where does that branch go to? And where does that go to? If it's depression or anxiety or uh, lack of confidence or just not feeling good about how life is right now, what is what is the branch? What caused this today from yesterday that I'm experiencing this and continuing to just follow that branch to the next branch, to the next branch, to the next branch until we get to the tree which is the source of all the branches. Then we can follow the tree down to the roots and really get to the source of the anxiety or depression or sadness or grief or whatever it might be. Who's been your um, largest mentor for, for dealing with your emotional self? I suppose. My largest mentor, my most influential mentor. Yeah, your mentor. most influential mentor. <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, I just have to say God. Mm. And again, for me, God is the great outdoors. I believe so profoundly in the healing power of nature how time spent outside has the ability to restore man to right mind, right body and right spirit. But that can also create a sense of isolation. If all I'm doing is going to the wilderness to wander and try to find myself. Mm -hmm. And second, second to that, I have to say, uh, I have to say it must be Ruth Williamson. And she is a life coach out of Bend, Oregon, and a Buddhist practitioner, and one of the softest, kindest, most loving guides that has been a part of my life. And she entered my life uh, fairly soon after my emotional rock bottom. <laughs> of which I'd spent years avoiding, suppressing, and numbing through all kinds of things. Oh, I mean, really? exercise and endurance sports and alcohol and drugs and women and just trying not to think those thoughts or burying my head in work and trying to work my way out of how I was really feeling as a human and just layering every single emotional experience on top of the other, never actually just listening to what I was feeling. My work, my work with Ruth lasted for about three or four months. And during that time, she taught me some of the most powerful principles that I carry with me to this day. The, the, the principle of focus and the principle of clarity and the principle of self-compassion, the principle of love, mm. 
and Ruth is is that person for me the person that had the the most profound impact on really leaning into my emotional human experience was there a way that Ruth connected with you that other people or other people of her nature were not able to connect with you? Mm. Wonderful question. And the, the short answer is yes. And the, the extrapolated answer to that is she just had this ability to tune into where I was on an energetic level in each one of our conversations and sessions. And the ability to really see below what was on the surface, like what, what lies beneath every single human man, child, and woman is a, a shining center of love, light, and beauty. But what happens through all of our experiences in life, especially those that create trauma and emotional pain is that that love, light, and beauty gets covered in, dark depression and despair and experiences that often unaddressed just get layered one on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other (laughs) until we're met with these people who are emotionally numb. They can't feel one of my friends said, Scott, one of my greatest awakening moments was when I realized that I couldn't feel my heartbeat it wasn't that his heart wasn't beating. It was that he couldn't slow his mind and his thoughts and his emotions down to a state in which he could actually feel his heart beating. And Ruth brought me to a place where I could slow down, where I could concentrate, where I could really feel, where I could tap into the things that I was actually trying to create in my life. It's that thing that we were talking about with fear and, and being able to be present in the moment. I'm about to cry. Like I forget how deep that goes for so many of us, for just people to the point where just being in your own body, in your own skin, you know, whether that's emotionally or physically, like it's really difficult. Mm. And I don't necessarily, it's simple, but it's really difficult. And like as an outsider or someone who likes to help, um, it's not as easy as creating the most or sanitizing the environment and purifying it of that experience. But reconciling with the experience and connecting with others as they go through it. Cause I, um, try to do that with my son and everything that I've ever, all the knowledge that I could bring to the table to sanitize the experience so that he doesn't have to endure the kind of the general suffering that I did. And I only to realize that, it's it's like whack-a-mole in that I cannot prepare I cannot san the harder that I try to sanitize the environment, the almost like a doctor's office or a hospital where it's super so sanitary 
that it's unsanitary for like a child to be born because, you know, it's a vacuum. And, and I like think about our society um, and me as really me as a father though. And like, that seems to be so much intrinsic to reality is not struggling for the duration of your whole life, but just being challenged by, by the very nature of who you are and working through that challenge individually and communally. Cause my, um, everyone that I meet's really uncomfortable with a por- uh, an essential portion of themselves, like a portion of themselves that they have to confront on a week, a daily or weekly basis. And I don't think anyone's experiencing it to the same level of intensity, but we all struggle with it one way or another. And I think it's really beautiful when I see people like yourself who have found ways to work with it and be able to work through it so that it doesn't because so that you're not spending your time numbing yourself and trying to hide from it and getting caught in that cycle of, of being in like a fear state and trying to numb all of these really challenging sensations and, and emotions and stuff just so you can get through the day and survive but instead to thrive by doing these, these kinds of processes, however you get to the party. Um, Cause I like my son, you know, this is like really personal, but I think this is just the reality of people is like, you know, says that he doesn't feel very loved. And like, I'm like, and not just as like, I hold my side, look at it in a very objective sense. And it's like, well, I do. I'm the kind of person where I, I felt unloved when I was a kid and I do all the things like I do a lot of one-on-one activities and I do a lot of group activities. I try, but even despite trying, there's still struggle. And rather than getting upset or identifying with my child has a struggle that what does that mean is me as a parent, I get to connect with him and pivot and see that we can connect in our shared adversity and I can help him try to cope with those feelings that he has rather than trying to take it away and create the environment where that can never happen. And backpacking really taught me that because I can't sanitize that environment. It's really hard to go uphill. Like, you know, and I can't help him. I can't even carry him up the whole hill, especially as he gets older because like he's nine years old. Like I I really unrealistically, I can't, I can carry his gear, but that's the most that I can do for him now. And if he stops, or if I let him stop 10 times, the uphill is still there. It can't be corrupted by my, um, by my interference. Right. Because I can't remove him from the situation. We're stuck. We're committed. And that's why I really value these situations. I think that there's there's a question there mm-hmm. in in a lesson in your experience with your son saying that he doesn't feel love and one that we can all ask in any kind of situation or experience that's bringing fear or uh, a, a, a sense of disconnection or feeling like we aren't loved as much as we want to feel. And that is 
just asking why and not stopping there. So, I mean, if the, if the surface level symptom response is I'm not feeling loved, we can ask why. And the response from the other person might be, well, Scott, you're not giving me enough hugs. And then I can ask, well, why does me not giving you enough hugs make you feel not loved? And they might say, well, because I just really appreciate your warm embrace. And then we can continue this, uh, this tree of asking why to really get to the root of what it is that's causing someone to not feel loved. And they might say that, well, your warm embrace, just it's your, your energy. You just have so much positive energy that I feel when you give me that warm embrace. And then we can continue and just say, well, what is it about that positive energy that makes you feel loved? And they might say that, well, I just feel like I'm around a lot of negative energy. And we, if we stop, if we were to stop there, we can realize that it's the negative energy that's really causing them to not feel loved. It's got nothing to do with us. But if we stop at the first question, why don't you feel love? And they say, it's because you're not giving me enough hugs. So we start giving them hugs and tons of hugs and a week goes by and they still don't feel more self-love because they're still around that negative energy. We never got to the root of it. That's beautiful. I would imagine that would help for your own self as well. Absolutely. What kind of rock bottom were you experiencing? And um, in addition to Rachel, what were some things that helped you um, overcome those obstacles? Hmm. Rock bottom. (laughs) How do I describe rock bottom? As a place that is so dark where every day just feels like I'm living in hell where the life that I'm living is far from one of happiness and joy and contentment and love where I feel like I am in prison except not a concrete prison. I'm in the prison of my own mind. stuck running videos of the past pains in my life, heartbreaks and heartaches and uh, promotions that I expected to get and didn't get, or uh, opportunities that I thought should have come my way, but didn't come my way. Self-hatred manifesting in its greatest form. 
not wanting to exist in this world. And I use the word exist because existence is all that I was. All that I felt like I was doing. Stuck in me, myself and I. Experiencing the most pitiful, pitiful things of life. Just trying to avoid my human experience, Will. Mm. Just trying to avoid how I was really feeling inside. I mean, my my life looks pretty fancy on the outside. I've got success, successful corporate careers. I've done the Eagle Scout. I've climbed so many mountains. I've become a member of my community at this point in my life. But spiritually inside, I just feel dead. And on an emotional level, I don't go a day without feeling depression and thoughts of ending my life and thoughts of, well, maybe I'll just drink enough tonight to completely melt this pain away and kill this life so that I can create a new one someday. I distinctly remember the day I went on a hike with my mom up in the Mount Hood National Forest after a weekend of hellacious partying. And as I was walking up the trail, I just heard this voice in my head. It said, Scott, you can continue what you've been doing for the last several years, or you can essentially walk this other path of which there is no path and choose a new way of life. And the choice that we all have to try something anew, to change everything and leave behind that which we know is given to all of us every single day. But the fear of the unknown is what kept me paralyzed and trapped in my way of existing. That, uh, that moment that I talk about was uh, about five years ago. And since that day, there have been dozens of mentors and spiritual teachers and therapists and coaches and books and people and adventures and a bounty of beauty beyond my wildest dreams that have manifested in my life. And and just sitting here talking with you about it, really reflecting on where I've come from creates such a, a, a sense of joy and gratitude and warmth in my heart, man. I mean, I I feel light today. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't feel like I'm carrying a 75 pound backpack through the Himalayas full of a bunch of, uh, emotional garbage from my life. I think and it's so powerful to see someone come through that transition. I've um, grown up and been around a lot of the culture of people who suffer with addiction and um, in many forms. And it's really painful to see it arc throughout their whole life. But I, I know a lot of people, actually most people who aren't even halfway through their lives yet, 
who have been struggling with those things. And there's a lot of opportunity for them to emerge and, you know, find, find their high, their highest of highs. Hmm. I don't know if you listen to, um, to metal, but like it's Chiodos or Johnny Craig, uh, the lead singer of Chiodos, he was, um, sober recently and then he relapsed um and i know he's really struggling because a lot of other peers in the industry people have come and gone and so i think even within a successful thing where you could be successful in other things in the material world even like you were the mind is fickle and it's a it's challenging to wrestle with that's with self-destructive behavior And in my experience, that was the thing that I was most terrified of. But that terror was actually very limiting because it's inevitable to wrestle with some sort of self-destructive behavior. And it's not the fact that you wrestle with it, but how you wrestle with it, I think that matters. Mm. That's beautiful, Will. And while I, while I share with you and our audience that my moment of clarity was five years ago that I, I got sober and cleaned up my life and I've created such a beautiful life to this day. About a month ago, I decided I'm going to drink. I'm going to try drinking for a while. Up to that point, I had experienced a a lot of pressure to remain this sober superstar and spiritual seeker and public speaker and someone who's a shining light to everyone in this world. And I thought, well, why can't I just drink again like a normal folk? Mm -hmm. And that experience brought with me just a subtle reminder of what drinking can do to a person. And I'm so grateful that I got to re-experience some of who I was and step back into the realm and the reality of recovery so quickly. Mm-hmm. Most people like uh, the, the metal singer that you talked about don't get the invitation or opportunity from a higher power to re-enter the life that they left behind, even for a day or week or month or year or two, they fall right back down to the Valley of despair. And that rock bottom moment that I talked about five years ago Mm -hmm. for me, gratefully, that hasn't been the experience at all, but that, uh, that momentary relapse in time empowered me with the ability to cultivate so much compassion and empathy for people that are stuck in the grips of an addiction, not just substance, but also an addiction to abusive relationships, Mm. uh, an an addiction to negative and toxic self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors and emotions that keep them stuck in their current identity or their past self that they don't desire to be. When you came out of that situation, was it perilous for you to pivot and transition back into sobriety um, or was it smooth for you? Smooth. Um, and, and, and the reason I say smooth is because 
for me, my experience was met with gratitude and grace, not uh, um, guilt and feeling like I was a disgrace. And a lot of guilt and shame is created when we do something that's not in alignment with our greatest values and principles and beliefs. And when we can really let go of that attachment to something that we've done and truly become human and accept our human experience for what it is in its entirety, then we can actually let go, accept and forgive ourselves for all that, which we have done. Oh, I never thought of that as a potential for forgiveness to circle back and revisit your relationship with, with something that had so much power over you. I, I had a odd situation growing up that my mom could relate to as well in that my mom was in a bunch of her peers and all of them would do meth and the relationships that she were in were like lifelong, um, I guess users of methamphetamine. I don't really know how I was going to put that, but, um, and most in between the people that like the men that she was with, they really liked to do meth. Um, she would be in those relationships and would, participate in the lifestyle and party with them. Um, but there got to a point in her life where she hit a rock bottom and she decided that she didn't want to do meth anymore. Uh, but she wasn't like, I'm using too much meth and I need to stop using meth. She was in a moment of clarity in her life where she looked at the quality of her life and what they were doing. And she didn't, she didn't have any desire to, to be that way or feel that way anymore. Uh, and from there on out, she wasn't using meth and she was using other substances like, you know, marijuana and alcohol. Uh, but she'd keep a job and she was able to take care of everything. And at one point she would have trouble with alcohol years down the road. And then she would stop with the alcohol um, and restabilize her life and then drink alcohol. So she wasn't like she would form abusive relationships, but she was able to back down and pivot. And the difficulty that she has is she doesn't understand what was different, because if you were to like talk to her in terms of her character and things like that, she obviously had problems. And even in comparison to like those other people, you know, even the guys and stuff like that, she might've had problems that they didn't have. Like she was violent and they weren't, you know, but they spent their whole lives not being able to have a job and like going through losing their jobs and continuing to do math and losing their children. And she took care of their children. So when I grew up, my siblings, all of them were doing meth by the time they were like 12. Meth was never in my, it was in my household, but it was never with my mom and I, because my siblings are at least 10 years older than me. So by the time that I was born, there wasn't any meth in my household. Well, actually, after I was a baby, there was no meth in my household. And that's when my mom got clean. But I grew up 
and all of my siblings were um, addicted to meth um, or had abusive relationships with them and heroin as well. And they would rob people, abduct people and um, compete to sell amphetamines and stuff with other dealers in Washington and California. They spent their whole lives on that, like all the way until they were young adults and still. My sister's struggling with it. And my brother, he has a kid and he's not struggling with it. When I was a kid, I didn't struggle with the compulsory behavior. I would party and I overdose, but I overdosed because I was, I was striving to prove myself, not because I was obsessed with the sensation of um, the drug, but I was always afraid of that because in contrast to my peer or my siblings, they were all you know, getting really hurt and their lives seemed really destructive and it seemed very scary. And my dad was never around because of his um, behavior and drugs. And I was always really afraid of that, but I winded up in a lot of perilous situations because of drugs. And I was always drug curious and I took the drugs and overdosed and people abandoned me in a ditch and I almost died. And at first I blamed the people who would participate in partying. And I thought drugs are terrible. They lure you down this road. Um, and I developed a relationship with food in my sobriety that became really unhealthy. And I realized that I was, I would see people who were overweight and in chronic pain. And there was tons of things that were wrong with them as a result of self-destructive eating, but I couldn't stop eating. <laughs> like you have to eat food, even if you manage your abusive relationship with food. And it made me really rethink what I thought about drugs and people, because I thought that maybe it's the human experience to learn what's appropriate, what moderation really means to you what the experience of overdosing or overdoing anything that you do means, whether it's burnout at work or your relationships are crumbling, you know, or you have hypertension because of too much consumption of sugar or, or any of those things. And also what not enough of, of that is like, and I wouldn't go to Johnny Craig and be like, you shouldn't, <laughs> you should quit drugs to go and do drugs again. But it's such an interesting experience because I thought that I was going to be like my siblings. And I thought that I always was, I just never had the opportunity to smoke some heroin. And I was even locked in a car by my friend and said that I, if I got out of the, I, the only way to get out of the car is if I smoke heroin. Uh, and I was terrified because I thought just, if I just got an experience, I would, I'm just like my siblings, but my siblings, when they use, when they use alcohol or when they were using, you know, even marijuana, we wouldn't struggle in the same ways or in the same intensity. Cause I've struggled with overusing marijuana, um, or obviously overdosing on alcohol, but I never would fixate on it and use it every single day until I couldn't pay the rent. But I still felt connected to them in some way because overeating is kind of the same thing and using too much, you know, alcohol until you overdose or smoking too much pot to where you're spending all your money on it. It's kind of the same thing, but not quite. But I think that stuff is, is interesting because I think on all some level we, we suffer, suffer greatly. And I think we can really relate 
to each other on that. And at the very end of the day, if it isn't drugs, then it's food. Mm. Because whether, whether it's drugs or alcohol, which is a drug as well, or food or sex or TV or porn or adventure or exercise or work or whatever it might be. All of these can become a conduit into altering our human experience and avoiding the things that we don't want to experience. Can they also be thinking about your experiences with exercise and things like that be the catalyst to ex- to get you out of um, the rut that you're experiencing and introduce you to new aspects of yourself? 100%. <laughs> and, 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 and just like you, just like you had alluded to though, it is possible to overdo it or yeah. do it with the wrong intention. And I think that what we all shall ultimately strive for and aim for is balance, <laughs> seeking balance so that we're not going too far in any one direction. Actually, one of the uh, affirmations I read on a daily basis now is that I, uh, I am fluid with life and not too rigid in any one direction <clears throat> because that creates a one dimensional life and a closed minded reality that my way is the right way. And your, your way is the wrong way, <clears throat> which closes us off to community and human connection and the bountiless beauty that is all around us. And it closes you off to opportunity because you even you say that in in community, but you've even mentioned that in relationship to your own self, because when you experience pain or any of these other things, asking why is an acceptance and admittance for your experience. It's opening yourself up to the to what is going on Mm -hmm. and opening yourself up beyond the ideology of what you think is happening to understand and discover what actually is happening. And I, what we were talking about, you were saying when I was mentioning the clouds that we live through our belief structures, through the veil of, you know, all of our, our beliefs and the, the forms that we apply to the, to the world. Um, and I think very much that is our experience and it helps to be able to test that, to see what's delusion and what is reality, Hmm. you know, and, uh, and that's kind of my, been my experience with the outdoors because the outdoors is like these, all these things has the opportunity. If I don't overindulge to um, ground me in the real world, because cold feels cold and hot feels hot and up is hard and down is flow. Like, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and that's almost the most liberating experience out there for me. You could take anybody in the whole world. And if they go up a hill and down a hill, or if they're on exposure, uh, we can relate, you know, and nothing will, there's no guarantees and nothing will like buy your way out of that experience other than a different vehicle, you know, but that's not hiking then, is it? <laughs> um, how it, it, so I do want to be respectful of your time, Scott. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. What's the difference in your mind between self-indulgence and self-compassion? And, and how do you, how do you find that line? Hmm. 
self-indulgence is really the act of overdoing something or underdoing something or, or doing something that uh, maybe I should not do because I have a biological reaction to it. Mm -hmm. Self-indulgence creates self-suffering, right? So when we talk about self-sabotage, indulging in activities or the consumption of things that create pain is an act of self-indulgence. And your other question though was about self-compassion and self-understanding and exploration of who I am and why I am who I am and compassion and self-understanding is really cultivated through waking up to our human experience. And as your podcast is titled becoming human, just being what we are and not resisting it or fighting it, but going with the flow of life and finding balance in the, the middle way in all that we do. It's possible to overdo everything. It's also possible to underdo everything. And it's possible to do things that maybe we shouldn't do because they do pull us off balance. So the practice of compassion is really an exploration into the self and becoming to understand who we are. The person that we will spend the most time with in our entire lives is staring right back at us in the mirror. <laughs> the person that we know very little about is also staring back at us in the mirror. Because we spend so much time being so busy and so curious and so compassionate about other people and other animals and our pets and our things and uh, developing compassion for social media and really understanding what that's all about. That we don't just sit with ourselves and be with ourselves. Like you had said, Will, and I couldn't vouch for this enough, that one of the greatest discomforts that any human has is just being with themselves. And only through that practice and that experience can we cultivate self-compassion and self-understanding and create the opportunity for self-renewal and transformation and become the butterfly. Breaking free from the cocoon of our own mind and our old beliefs and our old thought patterns and our behaviors that aren't necessarily in alignment with becoming the man or the woman or the child that we desire to become the version of ourselves that exists in that parallel universe reality. With, do you imagine that we can be in a reality where it is so easy to get there that that the f that the effort would be very low to achieve that state of being or do you think it's intrinsic to our nature that it's a difficult thing to do both and i i say it depends it depends on the path that we choose just like in my story and my experience, uh, I had a I had a choice to choose the path of force and destruction 
that would inevitably create the life, the reality that I was to experience one of constant struggle and pain and triumph and challenge and tribulation and all the trials that come with life, which in many ways is inevitably part of our human experience. But there is also a path where dreams and goals and desires and happiness and peace and beauty and love and all of these things that we desire to be a part of our human experience happen with seemingly effortless ease. They happen with seemingly effortless ease. Like when you talk about the pure method, the parallel universe reality emulation, which essentially means that there's a universe running in parallel with our current reality that matches that reality that we truly desire to live within. The one that's full of love and compassion and happiness and abundance of resources and people and community and all of the, that which we desire to be a part of our human experience. But it really comes down to choice and clarity and a willingness to shave my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, oh, I have one more thing. And it's on clarity. Um, How would one improve their clarity? Great question. And I believe that it starts with realizing that one lacks clarity. And gaining a crystal clear understanding of where one is in life or career or relationship or their own experience with themselves. Clarity starts with realizing the lack of clarity around any given thing in life and identifying that which internal or external sources are fueling the fog or lack of clarity. When I talk about internal sources that are creating a lack of clarity, I mean, what internal emotions or thoughts or the things within my own mind, mind, body, spirit are creating a sense of feeling that I'm lacking clarity in any one area of my life. And when I talk about external things that are creating a lack of clarity, I'm referring to the things that we're putting inside of our body. It could be the quality of the air that we're breathing, the quality of the water that we're drinking, what food we're eating, what substances we're consuming, what kind of drugs that we're on to manage different kinds of medical conditions, whatever it might be that we're putting into our body. And this let's not discount the community that we're connected to in our environment as well, because all of these external factors create our current reality that affect our internal reality and our internal state. So gaining clarity around what has brought us to this moment is really one of the foundational elements to building more clarity around what it is that we desire to create or change or transform in our lives. And one of the, the next elements, and I'll probably unpack at least three that are part of this creation of more clarity in one's life is finding people mentors not necessarily individuals to put on a pedestal because i'm not at all saying that we should go find someone that is above us in any way shape or form but finding somebody 
that emulates the values and the principles that you desire to create and cultivate in your life. If you desire peace and calmness and gratitude and uh, a state of inner calm and presence and pure clarity and acceptance of the present moment, you might study and make the Dalai Lama one of your mentors. Mm -hmm. If you desire to become an innovator and inventor of our time and a leader in the technology industry, you might make Steve job one of your mentors or people to look up to. Mm -hmm. If you desire to become a, badass world renowned adventure athlete jimmy chin might become one of your mentors and the point being here is simply to identify people that have created a life of being that you desire to clarify within your own reality people that have values and principles and things that they have given back to humanity that humanity that you desire to create within your own life and then just studying those individuals How do they talk? How do they walk? How do they present themselves? And we talk about pure, right? This parallel universe reality emulation. This is an invitation and opportunity to step into just being that. To being that person. And in order to be that person, you have to not be something because you only have a limited amount of time. Hmm. yes which goes into letting go right like let letting go of the attachment of my current beliefs and my identity and the way that i talk and walk and behave and do and exist which creates for the opportunity to be to become something else which is one thing that is so beautiful about the practice of meditation because meditation gives us a conduit a channel into letting go of that which does not serve us and making space to become that which does serve us, that which does serve humanity and the greater good in this world. We so thoroughly identify with our thoughts and feelings. Exactly. And change them. Mm -hmm. But, but we must first just let our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our experiences be what they are. The, the avoidance, the suppression, the expression, the repression of emotions actually just amplifies them and makes that layer of an emotional experience thicker than it would be if we were to just let it fully process as it is. I mean, the greatest thing in the world is an itch. <laughs> Because to deny the itch is to intensify the itch. And to give in to the itch is to intensify more itching. Mm. <laughs> and, and itching is always present. And and then, you know, I think about this a lot in meditation. That what, what purpose does itching even serve? Because if mm. there's nothing on my skin, why do I itch? And if I don't itch, how will it harm me? And if it doesn't harm me, why don't I just like experience the sensation of itching without having to deal with it. My mind can be really restless in meditation, but it's given me the greatest opportunity to get closer to my mind as it's restless. Mm. Um, is there anywhere that people could check out um, Peak Prosper, Scott Rowley? 
Absolutely. For, for anybody listening. And if you've listened to this whole episode, thank you so much for sticking around and being a part of Will's amazing community, becoming human. Um, if you, if you'd like to learn more about peak prosper, you can visit peakprosper.com. And we are a men's transformation and performance coaching company. We help men uh, transform their mind and create the life of their dreams. So again, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your show. Will. it's such an honor to be here today. And again, my gratitude to you, man. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you taking the time and just from talking to Logan, like you guys do some great work there and even talking to your own self, man, like, I got a lot of stuff that I got to think on for a while. Well, thank you so much, man. And, uh, boom. Absolutely. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to check out more about Scott and his life coaching, business coaching services, you can find him at peakprosper.com. And I'm going to play you out with a song by Christoph Crane. It's called Water Freestyle. I love these freestyles. You get to, you know, see see people without without any editing, see what they are in the moment, you know, and really connect with them in that way. Which isn't better or worse, just water? different. Oh, water. Water is a good, good week. one. Bye. Love? America! America love and water don't get along. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. It's a it's a conflicting uh, list of variables. What's that? Tofu, cub foods, dow foods, what? 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 Broccoli, karate, what? Grizzly bears. Motherfuckers, you better get it out of my way Because my kids, they're gonna drink all the water And they're gonna be really cool And your kids, your kids, they can swim over there in a swamp Or maybe a pool, I don't know But uh, this well right here, we're gonna take all the water And we're gonna sell it in a bunch of bottles And then we're gonna see all these people and say Here's a TV and here's your role models And then the people that are watching all the TV role models On the TV will go get a bottle Because the pill that they try to feed about 
I know that there's something right up above And the same thing up above is living in my heart And nobody can take it apart So even if we get the feedback from something like that We pray until our kneecaps get sore And that was the only way that I could ever try to find solutions to a day You can take an action or you can wave a flag Or you can wave a billboard What will you kill for? I won't really kill for nothing I'll just stand right there They can put the knife right up to my throat And say this is what you wrote It was his story But it's her story also And I know like a turtle It's a morsel of ingredients That we can get from the ocean And some like a pebble And we know it's just a motion And we're sitting in a room We're trying to make sense of it Experience we're doing We're sitting in a room We're trying to be receiving from the ocean We're sitting in a room We're trying to make Make sense of something, then it's all just the same. Like we were always with the family everywhere that we go. And if we take that perspective, we always will grow. I don't really know about the mass hysteria. You can look at me and say, Are you from America? But all I really know is that I'm from planet Earth and everyone feels the same. But not really, in some sense, you shouldn't judge the degree to which another Christian person suffers. That what taught me through Christian Amurdy that I wrote, which was a reference that Michael Larson gave me back when I was a little younger, like 11 or 7 or 17 or maybe 27 it really didn't matter cause the dude taught me how to find heaven here on earth and actually he's the one who taught me about the religion for me and it's no religion it's about the water it's about the sons it's about the daughter it's about looking up at the sun and saying thank you son for all you provide us thank you son it's about saying thank you to somebody you know it's about forgiving somebody you don't it's about learning how to cope with the pain and standing naked butt naked in the rain it's about standing butt naked in the rain and knowing most of the airplanes flowing all around they probably have chemicals but if you pay attention to it then you're just feeding that system like meow it's an ugly cat because the cat turned the grizzly bear where was that it was a city it was everywhere but back in the day the people lived off the land and they took each other's hand and they weren't trying to be like a man like a big buff ass man huffing and puffing like a big pump can about to get carved out real real quick because the children of the earth know about the new plan and the new plan is about not sitting around thinking about what we shouldn't do or what they do or what everybody else does it's about planting seeds looking at somebody and say you're what i need you're a beautiful human being sitting right in front of me i know because i probably dreamt about all of you we've probably been here about a thousand times before in different bodies but i don't really need to go there because that's just the stuff that goes on in my head it probably goes on in yours because we're the same instead of a yellow it could be a red a red it could be a blue blue you could see the sky me i could see in you it's infinity and it's in this room it's the only experience that we can consume or maybe just be with it be here thank you for making this moment so clear 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 in smoke